Our scripture this morning is from John chapter 5, verses 19 through 47. It's a little longer, so if you need to sit down, it's okay. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works of the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. The script, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not love, that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you, have, when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hopes. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of God to us this morning. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. I love it when we gather together and worship in song and now in the study of God's Word. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 5, verses 19 through 47. This is our Believe teaching series. We're working our way through the gospel of John, as you well know, you should probably have this verse memorized by now. John tells us why he wrote this book in John chapter 20, verse 31. These things were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. 
That's why he wrote this book. It's all about believing in Jesus. So we're asking the question this morning, who is this Jesus? You can grab your sermon notes also. You'll see the intro part of that. Who is this Jesus? Since the first century, that question has never failed to create a riot or a revival. The answers have ranged from demon to deity. No one is more hated and more loved than Jesus Christ. And yet, those who dare to look beyond the prejudices and encounter the historical person and work of the real Jesus Christ are never, ever the same. Now, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 3 through 4. He says this, that I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that somehow your minds may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Then he goes on in in verse 4. He says, for if anyone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, in essence, he's saying, don't be so easily led astray. There are those that are proclaiming another Jesus. So what I wanted to do is start off by by telling you the proclamation of those that are preaching another Jesus. There are major religions and cults that that talk about Jesus, but they're talking about a different Jesus that we know from God's word. And so, let me walk through them here. Islam would say about Jesus, uh, he is merely a man and a prophet inferior to Muhammad. Buddhism says he was not God, but an enlightened man like Buddha. Hinduism, he is a teacher, guru, or an avatar. His death didn't atone for sins. Scientology, spaceships and aliens. Kind of strange, huh? This is what it says. He is rarely mentioned. He is not the creator and did not die for sins. How about Christian science? Christian science would say he is not God, did not become a man or die for our sins or rise from the dead. Which, by the way, Christian science is neither Christian nor science, okay? And and in fact, have you ever eaten uh, grape nut flakes? Grape nut flakes. Christian science is a lot like grape nut flakes. Grape nut flakes, there's neither grapes nor nuts in grape nut flakes, okay? In Christian science, it's neither Christian nor science, okay? Just always keep that in mind. That's the biggest lesson you probably will walk away with today. No, you'll, you'll walk away with a bigger lesson. How about Mormonism? Last time I, I mentioned this, I had some, uh, a Mormon young man. There were some Mormons in our service, and they came up and tried to refute this. I just said, you need to dive a little deeper in what you teach. Because over the last couple uh, decades, the Mormons have tried to become more mainstream so that they, so they kind of hide and shield a lot of their earlier beliefs and their foundational beliefs. And so this is what Mormonism says. He was not God, but only a man who became one of many gods. He was a polygamist and half-brother of Lucifer. His body was created by sexual union between Elohim and Mary. Interesting. It's not the same Jesus that we talk about and proclaim here. And how about JWs, Jehovah Witnesses? He is not God. Before he lived on earth, he was Michael the Ark angel, a created being that became a man. By the way, they have their own Bible. It's called the New World Translation. Stay away from it. It's really bad. It's a bad translation. And then, of course, we have to include in this list liberal Christians. Liberal Christians would say he's not God, but a great moral teacher and a leader. There are churches in the valley that would teach that. 
So you just need to be aware of that. The movie The Da Vinci Code popularized this view a few years ago, and it's based on the Gnostic Gospels, which have proved, have been proved to be fraudulent. But, so when anybody that comes up to you and says, hey, by the way, did you know that there are lost books of the Bible? There are. I'm gonna start teaching from them next weekend. When I said that last night, there was a couple people that tried to leave, and I had, had them stop them at the door, okay? I was just joking, okay? No, we're not gonna teach from them. There are no lost books of the Bible, okay? No lost books of the Bible. All the books that are in the Bible are the ones that are supposed to be in the Bible. And there's nothing outside of that that needs to be in there. And so the, the Gnostic Gospels have proved to be fraudulent for any serious thinker if you just investigate it. So that's, that's just crazy. Here, here's the point that I'm trying to get across. Anyone who would claim that all religions are equally right is not listening very closely to what each teaches. And obviously they don't understand the first law of logic, which is the law of non-contradiction, because all the major cults and religions of our world today can contradict with not only each other, but also with historical Christianity. And it's, it's evident, and so we have the opportunity here this morning in this text to not only look at the claims of Christ, these, these are the very claims of Christ, but also the credibility of these claims through witnesses, testimonies. And so, when someone says that they believe in Christ, the important question for you to ask, and if you're saying that statement, you need to understand what that really means. It's not some general belief in Jesus, it's actually belief in who he said he is and belief in what he came to do. So who did he say he is? What did he come to do? That's what belief in Christ really means. We're gonna look at that this, uh, this morning through our text. And another thing to keep in mind too is that as we do this, let's not just do it kind of academically, let's do it really and do it in such a way that we behold the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done because that's what ultimately transforms our hearts. Not just kind of going through this academically and say, okay, that's what he said, that's what he came to do, okay. No, as you behold his glory, you will become whole. In fact, it tells us that in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It is in the beholding of his glory we become whole. What does that mean to behold his glory? It means more than just you getting a hold of it academically. No, it gets a hold of you. The person and work of Jesus Christ, this is my prayer for you, is that the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he claims to be and the credibility of those claims, would get a hold of your heart and if it happens to you, you will never be the same as you follow Christ and love Christ and enjoy Christ. So that's, that's where we're headed. Let's like a, take a look at the, the claims of Christ. Here's the first one. I am equal with God. That's what Jesus said. I am equal with God. Verse 18 was our verse from last week. Basically, verse 18, the Jews were trying to kill Jesus because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was making himself equal with God. So when with him making himself equal with God, first of all, we all believe in the triune God. We believe in the Trinity and uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God is one in essence, three in person. And so when he says that he's equal with God, we know that Jesus is co-equal, co-eternal. He is God. He's the second person of the triune God. And that's an important part of our theology. That's really, really important. So he's equal with God. He is God. And that's the point that he's making. 
here. And so look at verse 19 all the way to verse 20. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly. Stop there just for a minute because he's gonna use those uh, phrases over and over again. And you see Jesus often do this. Truly, truly basically means amen, amen. Now typically we say the amen at the end of our prayer. He's saying at the beginning of his statements. And what he means by this is, by the way, you get a little frustrated like I do in our culture today. You can watch one newscast and they'll talk about an event only to go to another newscast that it says something almost contradictory to what the other newscast said. We live in a day of a lot of fake news. You don't know who to trust. I'm telling you, you can trust God's word. You can trust what Jesus is saying right here. This is what Jesus is saying. This is not fake news. This is not my opinion. No, this is me. I'm God. In fact, truly, truly, he's saying, this is true. I know this firsthand. I'm the authority. In essence, he's claiming divinity or deity by making that statement. I know this. It's coming right from me. I'm God. Listen up. This is important. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing in greater works than these will he show him so that they may marvel. Back to the Trinity just for a moment. The Trinity is a, certainly a paradox, but not a contradiction. It is a mystery. And so co-equal, co-eternal with the living God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he is equal with God. So how do we know there is a God? How do we know there is a God? Answer, Jesus. He came from heaven to earth to reveal himself to us. What is God like? Answer, Jesus. Okay? How can I get to know God? Answer, you got it. That's right. By the way, we know that there is a God. We know what God is all about. We know what God is like, not by human speculation but by divine revelation. He showed up here. He revealed to us God. And so listen to what it says, Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, talking about Jesus. Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's why I love studying God's word, because it's all about Jesus and particularly the gospel accounts. Oh my goodness, we see God up close and personal through the life of Jesus. You wanna to get to know God? Get to know Jesus. You wanna know what God's like? Watch Jesus. Watch how he responds. Watch how he lives his life. Watch how he interacts with people. We have a front row seat to know God, to experience God, to encounter God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I am equal with God. Here's the next claim that he makes. I am the giver of life. Look at verse 21 of our text. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Acts 3.15 tells us that Jesus is called the author of life, the author of life. So that means both physically and spiritually, he is the author of life. John 14, 6, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He doesn't say I'm a way, a truth, a life. He says the way, the truth, the life. No other way to the Father except through him. 
regardless of what you hear from all the major cults and religions of our world today. Listen to me, there's no other way except through Jesus Christ. I am the way, the way to God, the truth about God, the very life of God. So how can we experience the life of God? How can we know that we have that life of God? By grace through faith in Christ, you can have that life. And you can be breathing and have a heartbeat and not be truly alive spiritually. There's a dimension that goes beyond the physical. There's a spiritual realm that you can be alive to. And we, and we enter into that by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and all that he is and all that he has done for us. And nothing will make you more alive spiritually than intimacy with God. I happen to believe that's, that's the best part of the Christian life, is that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you enter into an intimate relationship with the God of the galaxies, the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. That's my favorite. It's the best to have an intimate relationship with God, to know the living God, to interact with him, to experience him in your life. John 17, three puts it this way, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, to know God, not to know about God, but to know him personally. So that word know is not just information, it's not an academic pursuit, it's an existential uh, pursuit, it's, it's uh, an experiential pursuit. It's not just, not just information, it's intimacy with God. We can know the living God. Nothing will make you more alive than to know and have intimacy with the living God. Intimacy with God gives you an unimaginable quality of life. That's what Jesus said he came to give to us. John 10, 10, thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. We see all of that all around us. But I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. It's a quality of life. Intimacy with God gives us, gives you an unimaginable quality of life that all the success in this world can't give you. In my growing up days, back in the uh, 70s, 60s, 70s, as I was growing up, the big pursuit with some of my friends was sex, drugs, and rock and roll, baby. Yeah. Do they still say that nowadays? Or I'm just an old guy. Not quite like that. How many can relate to what I just said? Okay. You guys are really old like me, okay? Yes, sex, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I had other friends that was all fun, fortune, and fame. That was what they were pursuing. That's where they were trying to find life. Listen, all of that can never give you the life that only can be found in Jesus Christ and intimacy in him and through him with the Father, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So intimacy with God gives you an unimaginable quality of life that all the success in this world can't give you and all the suffering in this world, the cancer and the COVID-19 and the catastrophic events can't take from you. He gives us a life that, uh, that's out of this world. I am the giver of life, so I am equal with God. I am the giver of life. Here's the next one. I am the final judge. Woo, this is a good one. Look at verse 22 and 23. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honored the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, understanding this is the end of both boredom and bitterness. Boredom? 
that God is the final judge? Absolutely, because, because we live our lives before an audience of one. How can he judge us justly? Because he knows everything about us. This is true not just for Christians, but non-Christians also. It's called the omnipresence of God. He knows everything. He's always with us. Not to be confused with the, with the manifested presence of God. That's what we enjoy. So there's the omnipresence of God, and then there's the manifested presence of God. The interaction that we have with God, that intimacy that we have with him. And, and, and let me tell you, tell you this. How could your life be boring if you have intimacy with God? There's no boring in that whatsoever. There's nothing more exciting and exhilarating than to know God, to walk with him, to know that he's always there. And, and, and so certainly his presence always being there, and since he is the, is the final judge, it, it is both comforting in trials, but also very convicting in temptation. And what happens when you begin to live with this awareness is that um, you wanna live for his glory. So what does that mean to live for his glory? See, you were created by God, for God, to, to give glory to him. So how, what's the best way to give glory to him? by you finding your deepest satisfaction in him. Well, how do you do that? By practicing his presence, cultivating intimacy with him. Walk with him, know him, experience him, enjoy him. There's nothing like that. That'll get rid of all boredom. And that God would use you to talk to someone else about him? Oh my goodness, that's amazing. That's beautiful. But not only does it really eliminate boredom, but it also eliminates bitterness. How's that? How does it eliminate bitterness? Because because one of these days, Christ Jesus will balance the books, settle the score, and make things right. No one gets away with anything. I know you were hurt really badly by that person and you're really struggling to forgive them, but I'm telling you, you can forgive them and turn them over to God because what is in store for them? If they're an unbeliever, you're gonna pity them if you really understood what's, what's in store for them. Even if they're a believer, God will discipline them. No one gets away with anything. So that eliminates bitterness. So what was interesting in this day and time that people thought that when Jesus would come back, but he would only come back one time and he would set up his kingdom, that's what they were expecting. But little did they know that actually the Bible prophesies that he's gonna come back twice. The first time he's gonna set up his kingdom in our hearts, and the second time he's gonna set up kingdom on, on this planet earth and there's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth. And, uh, but why did he come the first time? Listen to me, he came to bear our judgment. He came to die in our place for our sins. Listen to what it says in 1 John 2, one through two. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. I know that some of you use that word every day, propitiation, don't you? Okay, there's like one person out here. You must be a real nerd, huh? And I know that you know what that word actually means, too. So here's the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? It means this, that all the wrath of God that was meant for you was placed upon Jesus. He took the wrath of God on our behalf. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only. Listen to this, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There are those that believe that Christ only died for a specific few people. That is not true. The Bible tells us over and over again, Jesus Christ, 
the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The judge took our judgment for us on the cross. That is amazing. That is beautiful. There's nothing better than that. That alone, and intimacy with God, that alone would be enough regardless of how your life ever goes from that point on, would be enough to, to celebrate till the end of your life all the way into eternity. That he bore your judgment, you have access into the throne room of God, you have intimacy with God, <laughs> what more do you need? Oh my goodness, absolutely breathtaking. But if you reject his first coming where he bore our judgment, you will face his second coming where he brings judgment. Listen to Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw the great white throne and him who was seated on it, that's Jesus, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. What? Very descriptive language. And no place was found for them. There's no place to hide. He is so overwhelming. This is such an ominous scene This is, that it even says in the book of Revelation that people will cry out for the mountains to fall on them as they come and and face the judge, the final judge, because of their rejection of him on his first coming. And so, important, so claims of Christ, he says, I am equal with God, I'm the giver of life, I'm the final judge. Here's the next one, we need this because it goes in line with being the final judge. I am the rescuer of man. Once again, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come under judgment. Do you hear that? Does not come under judgment. That's you and I who have put our faith in Christ, but has passed from death to life. Now, The most popular argument against Christianity is this. In our pluralistic world, Christianity is one among many religions, therefore, who are Christians to say that they have the truth and others are wrong? It's a big, strong argument against us. And to them, it sounds so narrow-minded, intolerant, and self-righteous. Here's our answer. Here's how you should answer that. Christians believe that their way is the only way because that is what their founder and leader, Jesus Christ, said. And not only that, that's what the Bible teaches over and over again. Jesus said it, and the Bible teaches it. So we say it only to echo the words of our Savior who already said it and echo the words of what is taught in the Bible. It's throughout Scripture. Now, the pluralistic view goes something like this. God is at the top of the mountain, and all religions are at the bottom of the mountain. And one religion will take one path up the mountain, another religion is taking another path up the mountain. But in the end, we all reach, all will reach God at the top of the mountain. What do you think? That's popular. That's a popular view. All roads lead to God. It's just you're on a different path, but we'll all get there eventually. Well, that's not biblical. In fact, the Christian view is that the God at the top of the mountain didn't wait for us to find our way up to him. 
There's no way we would ever have found our way up to him. But the God at the top of the mountain, he actually came down the mountain to reveal himself to us and to rescue us. That's the gospel message. He came searching for us. He revealed himself to us. He came to rescue us. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So, I'm equal with God, I'm the giver of life, I'm the final judge, I'm the rescuer of man. Here's the next one. I will raise the dead. That's your next one there. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Look at verse 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. How many are familiar with John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus? You guys familiar with this story? Great story. Jesus is notified, he's a, he's a ways away from Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Lazarus is on a sick bed, about to die. Uh, Mary and Martha are pretty upset about it. They send word to Jesus, his friend, and Jesus delays for a few days. Doesn't sound like a good friend there, does it? It's all part of his plan, and you gotta read the this, this story. It's really a phenomenal story. But Jesus delays a few days, and then finally he says, okay, let's go, disciples. Uh, Lazarus is asleep. And they say, oh, if he's asleep, then we'll go wake him up. And Jesus goes, no, nope, he's actually dead. So I find it interesting that Jesus uses, refers to death as, as sleep. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And so they show up, and as they show up, Martha runs out to Jesus when she sees him coming. This is what Jesus says to her. Jesus said to her, that is Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So let me ask you this question. What do you think is really the number one fear that people have in, in, on this planet? Number one fear. What do you think it is? You want to yell it out to me? How many would say death? How many would say death, death? Actually, it's not the number one fear. It's the number two fear. Number one fear is public speaking. <laughs> the number two fear is death. So people would rather die than to get up and speak publicly. Does that sound crazy? You know what the number three fear is? Death while public speaking. That's pretty crazy. So death is somewhere in the top five, okay? It's, it's a scary thing for a lot of people. And so, and, and so what Jesus is telling us that, that through, and we know this, is that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he conquered sin, evil, and death. And so as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't need to fear death. In fact, the Bible would describe death for us as like falling asleep. How many like taking Sunday afternoon naps? Yep, it's like taking a Saturday afternoon nap. Don't take it right now, okay, please? 
But uh, yeah, it's like taking a Saturday or a Sunday. This is Sunday, isn't it? It's not Saturday. Did I say Saturday? Okay, it's Sunday. Sunday afternoon nap. And uh, so, uh, so it's like taking a nap. So it's like taking a nap and waking up into the arms of our Savior filled with love and laughter. The one who would rather die than to spend eternity without us. So when you take your last breath on earth, you take your first breath with him for all eternity. And so that's really the point that Jesus is trying to make here. I will raise the dead. He actually says, you don't really die. You just fall asleep and you wake up. You're in his presence. And uh, that's it's pretty amazing. And I was thinking about Lazarus here for a moment, that he had to die, and then he came back out of the grave. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, if I was in his shoes, I was like, you guys wrecked this, man. Well, it was Jesus. He's the one that resurrected you. I mean, now I've got to die all over again. I mean, I, you know, maybe he's like, man, I was in a sweet place, and you brought me back to this place? So here's what I th- I'm thinking here, and I need to make a deal with you here on this one. So uh, eventually I'm going to die, and let's just say that some of you um, are really brokenhearted. Just pretend. And, uh, and, you're, and you're trying to pray me back, and I'm laying there, and I've already died. No pulse, no heart, uh, no heartbeat, no, uh, no breath. And you're praying and praying, and God resurrects me. And I wake up and look around the room and see you praying for me. I'm going to wring your necks, okay? <laughs> because now I've got to die again, okay? And I don't know how hard that first time was to die. It might be really horrible the second time, but I don't know. I'm just glad that I went to be with him. And that's really the, the, how we should look at death as believers. We don't need to fear death. We don't need to fear death. I will raise the dead. Here's the next one. I am always doing the will of God. This one was a little bit more convicting for me. Look at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own as I hear. I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I started thinking about this, and so Jesus is saying, I always do the will of the Father. And I'm thinking, could I say that? Probably not. Because I'm not always asking, you know, was my interaction with those people really doing the will of the Father? Was I really doing God's will in that interaction? Or by the way I'm spending my time right now, is that the will of the Father? Or, you know, how I'm dealing with my current circumstances, is that the will of the Father? So what we should be asking ourselves regularly, God, what is your will? How do you want me to respond? How can I honor you? How can I always do your will? Because that's the sweet spot of life. It's not only doing his will, but having intimacy with God. That's a great way to live. Now, what is the will of God? Well, we know the will of God is the word of God. What is the will of God? The word of God. Psalm 48, I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law or your word is within my heart. So the will of God is the the word of God. Now, keep in mind, when Joshua was going to lead the nation of Israel, the Israelites, into the promised land. Remember? Land of milk and honey, success, prosperity, all kinds of great things. And this is what he says. This is one of many things that is said. He says in Joshua 1.8, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. Then you'll be able to do everything that is written in it, and you will be prosperous and successful. 
No, 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 we know we'll be prosperous and successful. We're going into the promised land. No, 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 no. The promised land cannot give you the prosperity and success that only can come by those that meditate on God's word and do his will and live in that sweet spot of his will that is his word. That's what he's saying. How many want to be prosperous and successful? Show of hands, show of hands. Okay, some of you are a little hesitant to raise your hand on that. And some of you didn't even raise your hand. You think there's a catch here, don't you? I mean, some of you are like, I'm not going to raise my hand. You raise your hand. No, I think all of us want success and prosperity. You think I'm going to sell you something, don't you? Because that's oftentimes what happens. You watch some little video or whatever, and they say, there's always a hook. Well, there is kind of a hook. You know what the hook is? You want prosperity and success? Meditate on his word. Day and night. Interact with him. Know him. Ask yourself, God, what is your will in this? I want to follow you. I want to know you. So typically, I read a number of passages early in the morning, and there'll be a passage or two that will stand out to me, and I'll take that verse with me throughout the day, and I'll meditate on it. I'll use it for my prayer. I'll use it to minister to others. It's amazing how God will use that in my life. And I'm telling you, man, he, he speaks to us through his word and helps me to stay in line with his will. That sweet spot, that's a sweet spot. That's a great place to live. There's not a better place to live, and not only in his will, but in intimacy with him. I am always doing the will of God. Now, let me transition here. So how many know the difference between dogmatic assertions and defensible arguments? You guys know the difference between that? So we live in a world today where there's a lot of dogmatic assertions. Turn on the news, turn on, you know, go on the internet, and you've got to get good. We need to get better at recognizing dogmatic assertions, opinions. Yeah, he's got a PhD and he's got all, you know, a bunch of credentials or whatever. That doesn't mean it's true. It's a dogmatic assertion. Is this a defensible argument? We need to ask the question, is that a defensible argument? What they're saying, is that true? We need to be searchers of truth. Defensible argument, dogmatic assertions. And so is that a defensible argument? It's interesting, in uh, Proverbs eighteen seventeen, it says this, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. How many have ever heard a story from someone only to go to someone else and hear the story, but totally different from what that first person said? Show of hands. Yeah, here's, here's what's crazy about us as, as Americans and then as, as us as Christians. We'll hear one side of the story and fail to really do the, the research to find out what's the other side. There's always another side of the story. And so we're so quick to make a judgment on what little information that we have, and it's so important that we, we look for what are the, what's, what's the defensible arguments that are being made about, about this situation, about what's going on. Now, if people would have just listened to what the Pharisees said about Jesus, do you think that any of the people would have come to Jesus? Because, hey, they're highly educated, they're really, they're really smart, they study God's word, They're the moral teachers of the day. Oh, my goodness. Everybody elevates them. Well, if they're they're so educated, then what they're saying about Jesus must be true. So, oh, stay away from Jesus. But if for some reason people went beyond the prejudices of the Pharisees and began to ask the question, is that a defensible argument or dogmatic assertion? Sounds like a dogmatic assertion to me. I'm going to go and hang out with Jesus. 
And if you would have went to hang out with Jesus, you would have been captivated by his beauty and the glory of who he is and what he's done. And that's why many people came to him. And it was inconsistent with the rumors and the prejudices that were floating around about Jesus. And so what Jesus does here, the last part of this, is that he gives us, really, what he's saying here is that his claims, these are defensible arguments. Let me give you the credibility of Christ. Verse 31, he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. What Jesus is saying there in verse 31, he's stating God's divine decree that the witness of a single person was not considered sufficient evidence in a court of law. In fact, Deuteronomy 19.15 makes this clear, and you see this throughout Scripture, this principle throughout Scripture, even in the New Testament. Two or three witnesses were required before a valid judgment could be formed. Now, what I find interesting with Jesus here is that uh, Jesus is amazingly patient with these Pharisees. Because if I was Jesus, you wouldn't want me to be Jesus, okay? And if I was Jesus, if I were God and came to earth and just healed a guy who had been an invalid for 38 years and people showed up to criticize me, I'd have told them to take a hike, okay? You know, out of here, adios, gone, get out of here. But, but Jesus doesn't do that. He gives five additional pieces of evidence that he is God, to these Pharisees. But he shoots straight with them and he gives them some pretty, pretty hard truth. So let me look at these, let's look at these five witnesses of, of Jesus' deity. Think of it as a court scene and here comes the first witness as he takes the stand. Here's the first one, John the Baptist. Look at verses 32 through 34. There is another, actually 34 to 35, 32 through 35. He says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He wants them to be saved, the Pharisees. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. They did. They loved John the Baptist. But what he's saying is that John pointed to me. Now, we know this, Isaiah 43 through 5, 700 years before Christ, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, was predicted. It was prophesied. We also know in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 5, 400 years before Christ, uh, John the Baptist was prophesied to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And so as we've already studied in John chapter 1, John chapter 3, remember what John said about when he saw Jesus? He says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, here's the Messiah you guys have been waiting for. I baptized him with water, but he's coming to baptize people in the Holy Spirit. In fact, when I baptized him, I saw the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove. May, may he increase, may I decrease. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. So he's just saying, that's a witness. That's a witness of what I've just said. Here's another one, Jesus' own works, verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. What were the works of Jesus? Well, he lived a perfect life. We also know his supernatural power. 
People were healed, blind eyes were opened, lame walked, the deaf regained their healing, their hearing, and he even stilled storms, fed the multitudes. Listen to what, this is the very last verse of the Gospel of John. Listen to what this last verse says, John chapter 21, 25. Now there are many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So his perfect life, his supernatural power, but, but also how about his own resurrection from the dead? So as we look around on, on the, in this world, disease, hunger, and death is the result of man's rebellion against God. We know that. That's why we're experiencing it, man's rebellion against God. And so miracles are the restoration of what God intended in creation. Jesus has come to fix what is broken. And so his miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also wonderful foretaste of the world we all long for. Revelation 21.4, he says that he will come back, new heavens, new earth, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more crying, pain, or death. Everything sad will come untrue. Jesus' own works are showing us that. And then God the Father, That's the next testimony. This is the highest authority. Look at verse 37 and 38. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. Wait, 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 wait. This is the Pharisees, and you've never heard his voice. Yeah, but they study the scriptures. They're pretty intense, and yet he's just saying, you guys are clueless. And you do not have his word abiding in you. Wait, wait, they've memorized a lot of, they would memorize the first four books of the Bible, the Torah. His word does not abide in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You see, the book was just information. It wasn't, it was an intimacy with, with God. Now, God the Father, how does God the Father testify about Jesus? I didn't get this far in the study this last week. It was kind of a long study, kind of ran out of time, so I don't really have an answer here. In fact, Nancy had me, uh, she said, hey, I need you to do some things, so she had a kind of to-do list that I need to go and work on, and so I never really got back to this. So I'm needing a little help as we kind of work this out this morning. Don't look at me like that. Okay, I think some of you know the answer to this question. How did, how did God the Father bear witness that this is his son? Well, we know that, Matthew Matthew 3.17, Mark 1.11, Luke 3.22. So Matthew, Mark, Luke all talk about Jesus' baptism and at Jesus' baptism, they heard a voice from heaven. The Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We also know based on Matthew 17.5, Mark 9.7, Luke 9.35. So Matthew, Mark, Luke again. We have the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember Peter, James, and John? going up on this mount with Jesus. Jesus lit the mountain up, and guess who spoke from heaven? This is my beloved son, listen to him. Now what's interesting is that later on, Peter writes about this, because he had this encounter, had this experience, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21, and this is what he says, these are not cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He goes on to talk about that event up on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
his experience. He said, I'm telling you, this was overwhelming. We were eyewitnesses of this man, Christ Jesus. This is God in the flesh. We had the personal experience. And then he goes on in this, and he says, yeah, that's important, but we have something more sure God's word. He says it right there in First Peter chapter or Second Peter chapter one. God's word. That takes us to the next one, the scriptures. And this is important. Jesus spends a little bit more time on this, verse thirty-nine through forty-four. You search the scriptures. He's talking to the Pharisees. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I can always tell when people are are reading the Bible how it should be read because it takes them to Jesus and they have the love of God within them. These guys searched the scriptures, but they didn't allow the scriptures to search them. They never came to Christ, therefore they don't have the love of Christ in their hearts. I know people like this. They have a lot of head knowledge about the Bible, a lot about morality. They can argue a good argument. They don't have the love of God in their heart. I don't want to be like that. Oh, please, Lord, I want to know you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do you hear what he's saying? We live in a day and time, and I even see Christians doing this. They're more concerned about what the world says, more concerned about what their friends say, and not concerned enough about what God says. And he's saying, no wonder you haven't come to me because you're too busy listening to the glory of man. Your little peer group. Man, you better break out of that and start listening to me and seek the glory that only comes from the Father. So in talking about the scriptures bearing witness of of the claims of Christ, the whole Bible is about Jesus. The Old Testament promises God's rescuer. The New Testament presents God's rescuer. Luke chapter 24, 27, and 44, Jesus reemphasizes that. Jesus fulfilled 300 Old Testament predictions concerning his first coming. That in itself is, is pretty weighty. Now, there are two views. We're almost finished here, and I'm going to have you talk just about 15 seconds and ask the person next to you. Two views about the Bible. Is the Bible a book by men seeking God, or is it a book by God seeking men? Turn to the person next to you and see if they know the answer to that question. By the way, that's really an important question because it really determines, it determines how you're going to uh, study the Bible. So is it, a, it is a, a book by men seeking God or a book by God seeking man? Which one is it? God seeking man. There's a lot of people that would teach it like it's a book of man seeking God. It becomes more self-help and how-to and you need to do this and you need to do that. Here's another question for you. Is the Bible a book about what we must do to be right with God or is it a book about what has been done to make us right with God? Is it do or done? It's done. It's done. Can you believe it? We have access into the throne room of God by grace through faith in Christ. 
It's been done. And so what we do is in response to what has been done. Makes all the difference in the world in how you understand God's word, how you teach God's word, how you live out God's word. It's not a self-help book. It's not Aesop's fables. Here, boys and girls, let's be moral. Let's be nice. No, let's look at what he's done and then let's respond to it with a life that gives glory to him. That's what the book is about. And that's important. And it's all about Jesus and, and if, you, if you approach it like, it's, uh, like you're reading about him rather than having an interaction with him, then you're reading it wrongly. It's about interacting with him. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, all scripture is God-breathed. So the Bible is really the very words of God. It also tells us in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active. So not only is the Bible the very words of God, but the Bible is the, the personal active presence of God. So when you pick this up in the morning, you're interacting with the living God who speaks to you through this book. His, his very presence in your life. That's important. And so as you study his word, Certainly you're gonna find life lessons and all that, but don't look for life lessons as much as you look to have intimacy with your Savior, the only one who can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. Now listen to me, your heart will always, always, always be restless until you find your rest in Him. Find your rest in Him. Get to know Him. Here's the last one, Moses. Do not think that I accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's actually saying that what Moses wrote, five books of the Bible, first five books of the Bible, is inspired of God. He's talking about inspiration here. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So we believe here at Desert Breeze, the Bible is the infallible, inspired word of God. In fact, 2 Peter 1.21 talks about inspiration. It's not inspiring. No, these are the very words of God is what inspiration means. For no prophecy or scripture was ever written by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So our definition of inspiration, we talk about that. God worked through the instrumentality of human personality, guiding them to write what he wanted written. And so he did that with Moses, and that's what Jesus is saying. And if you don't believe Moses, how are you going to know me? Because Moses talked about me. He pointed to me. So the Jews were very proud of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, that were written by Moses. But it's one thing to have the word of God in your hands or even in your head, but it's all together another thing to have it in your heart they didn't have God's word in their heart so in Deuteronomy 18 15 and 18 Moses predicted the coming of Christ and told the Jewish people to listen to him and obey him when he came but the Jews did what they failed to receive him listen to him and obey him so here's the conclusion what we're saying here these are the claims of Christ and his credentials through five witnesses. This is just a small part of the text of, of the overall uh, Bible. You can reason to a point of probability beyond a reasonable doubt in the truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ, but it takes commitment to lead to certainty. It takes commitment. Committing your life to him to lead to certainty. When you completely give your life to him and live your life for him, you will never be the same. Whatever you give up 
to follow Jesus is nothing compared to what you will gain. In fact, if Jesus is who he said he is and did what he came to do, then it would be utmost folly, foolishness, to not give your life to him and live your life for him. Man, I invite you this morning, give your life to our Savior Jesus. Live your life for him. There's not a better way to live your life. It's not the easiest way, but it's the best way. He will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Next weekend, we're gonna talk about uh, John 6, 1 through 15, God's power through you. We're two weeks away from Easter. We got a baptism party that weekend. If you wanna get baptized, even today would be a great day. If you've never confessed Christ as your savior, we would love to help you to do that. You can do it in a minute when I pray by giving your life to him, and then we would love to baptize you on that weekend to celebrate um, the, really the declaration of your faith in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there'll be a class, 10 minute, 15 minute class right up here at the end of the service. Uh, my left, your right. Um, Invite your family and friends for that weekend. It's gonna be a great weekend. And also, if you're a Game of Life graduate, we'll have your uh, T-shirts and, and also your certificates up here at the front. My wife and I will be up at the front at the end of the service along with any available elders. If you are new, we would love to meet you. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So, Father God, we are so thankful that the gospel is both rational and relational, that Christ not only appeals to our minds but he also satisfies our hearts. We believe and put our trust in Jesus, that he is who he said he is, the Christ, the Son of God, and that he came to do what he said he came to do, and that is to rescue, redeem, and reconcile us to the Father. So we give our lives to him and want to live our lives for him. May he be most glorified in us as we are most satisfied in him. We pray these things in his beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys. God bless you.